0: Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and you're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this February edition of the show, we'll be talking elections, Oscars, Filipino transvestites and a special guest appearance from none other than Chuck Norris.
1: You might think I'm a tough guy in my films, but in a rough neighbourhood like the Middle East, Israel has its own tough guy. His name is Bibi Netanyahu. With
0: a little help from his friends, Benjamin Netanyahu will remain Israel's Prime Minister following the elections, but what happened to the predicted surge to the extreme right? And as Oscar night approaches, we take a look at two of the shortlisted documentaries, both from Israel, and both with a very different take on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Carers by Day, Transvestite Karaoke Stars by Night. The story of the Filipino care workers in Israel now taking center stage at the Tricycle Theatre in London. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. And joining me in the podcast studio this month are three illustrious guests covering literature, politics and film. Naomi Alderman, award-winning novelist, writer of Disobedience, The Lessons and her latest novel, The Liar's Gospel, which came out last summer to great acclaim. She's also professor of creative writing at Bath Spa University, Noch. But we get that Not. in there. Congratulations <laughs> on your book. Uh, tremendous reception, The Liar's Gospel. Uh, got You'll be at Jewish Book Week talking about it.
1: I will. I'll be at Jewish Book Week actually at the end of this month, 24th of Feb. Um, and then the book's released in the States the week after that in, uh, yeah, start of March.
0: Well, how do you think it's going to go down in the States?
1: Well, it'll be interesting. I mean... Um, so far, I have, I have been shortlisted for a couple of prizes in the US Father books uh, and Jewish prizes. So, I mean, I'm a Jewy writer. Or I, I write Dewey, Jewish and Jew books. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I also write intellectual books. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't say that Zadie Smith is like, specifically a writer only from the back, black community because she writes about black things too. So, um, yeah. Sure, was this I'm, where you're
0: trying to branch out here doing Jesus in your new <laughs> novel, trying to look for a new audience?
1: <laughs> well... Jesus was a Jew, I don't know if you're aware of that. I've heard. Uh, you've heard. You've, you've heard rumours. You weren't invited to, to the mitzvah. No. Um So, and I felt like this was a subject that had never really been tackled, Jesus from that Jewish perspective and really thinking about what that story is if you are a Jewish person and actually Jesus is not so fantastically interesting but the history around him is very interesting, comes, happens at a very interesting time in actually both Jewish and Roman history, so for that reason but yeah I don't know what the what the reaction is going to be in America I'm hoping I'm not going to get many death threats
0: yeah that's right you but haven't met uh, Mel Gibson yet yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like
1: a couple of death <laughs> threats I, I think would be good for the you'll book. be
0: alright because you're a video games expert as well Naomi this is bizarre <laughs> how you, how you t- manage to twin these two I know schools. who would
1: have thought one person could know about two separate things that's
0: ridiculous yeah <laughs> Uh, Naomi, we'll hear more from you as well. That, the confusion around uh, the, the politics in the, the Liars' Gospel time doesn't seem to have changed much, I think, was we've examined. No, sadly, that this, is the case, over sadly. This, over this uh, podcast, because we've also got uh, Yossi Meckelberg with us. He's Middle East Analyst at Chatham House and the Programme Director of International Relations at Regents College. Yossi, welcome. Well, nice to be here. B- busy time for you, I suppose, The, the but not just the, the Israeli fallout, but the whole of the Middle East.
2: Uh, there is no business like Middle East business, so it's always busy there. If if it's not elections, it's peace process. It's not peace process attacking Syria. If it's not Syria, there is some Arab Spring going on. There is Iran
0: When, the, when you're asleep it's, and the phone rings, do you think, I mean, me as a film critic, when the phone rings at like six in the morning, I think, oh, wonderful, someone famous has died, and I get to talk about them. What, do you, what when, when the phone rings, do you think, oh, what's happened now?
2: I, first of all, worried what my wife is going to say about the the phone rings yeah. at past midnight or five o'clock in the morning. And then I know, usually I know about something big happening during the night because journalists call, not because they actually followed it, but yeah. that's, that's the life of doing commentary.
0: Um, and writer and filmmaker Alexander Bodin Safi is also here. He's the uh, writer in residence at Great Ormond Street Hospital, who's uh, making a uh, documentary with Israeli and Palestinian filmmakers and is on the board of the New Israel Fund UK and Yachad. Uh, what are you working on at the moment, Alexander?
3: Working on um, a project with the Heyman Brothers in Israel. Um, and We'll talk
0: about the Heyman Brothers because one of them directed paper dolls, which is going to be made into a play at the, at the tricycle.
3: Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, so you're,
0: you're working with them on, uh, in Israel on the project or f- doing it from here?
3: They have um, a, a TV series that uh, follows a number of families in Israel and um, one of the families has a, um, a protagonist that lives here.
0: The elections in Israel may be over, the votes counted, but such is the complexity of coalition politics in Israel that the final makeup of Benjamin Netanyahu's new government is still being negotiated. Whilst Bibi is staying on as Prime Minister, that's no surprise, these election results did throw up some shock results, not least the winning of 19 seats out of a total of 120 by total newcomer Yair Lapid, a former talk show host and newspaper columnist who set up his Yesh Atid, that means there is a future party just under a year ago. And what of the predicted surge to the right to the party set up by Netanyahu's former chief of staff, Naftali Bennett? To put us in the picture is Yossi Meckelberg. Yossi, is it too early to say exactly how Israel's political landscape has now changed?
2: It's always too early because <laughs> elections tell us very little. If they tell us, at least me, anything, is the growing confusion because you get everything. It's a mishmash of so many things, of so many different parties, which you sit there and watch the exit polls and say, what actually the Israeli voters want? And they want everything. Mm -hmm. And you have a very sophisticated country, in many ways, and sophisticated uh, people that vote very unsophisticatedly. Mm -hmm. And the reason what they do, they spread the vote. And instead of going for damage limitation, which usually elections are all about, not the kind of ideal leaders or party there, but the one that causes least damage, unless they get exactly what they want, they don't vote for it or they stay at home. And I think that's the problem. The day you see the exit point, and everyone, you look at Lapid, you look at Bennett, look here and there and say, okay, but how do I form a government? And then when the horse trading is starting, and the reality, they find it very difficult to form any coherent policy, coherent agenda for the next four years.
0: In Britain, people are sort of died in the wall. Labour supporters have always voted Tory. To people in Israel, it seems to me, kind of vote different in each election. Very hard to predict.
2: Oh, they died in the wall, confused, <laughs> and and the, the, that's why you see the the shooting stars of every election. One election are the the, the pensioners, and then is the Shinui party of uh, Yair Lapid's father. Yosef uh, Lapid and Danny Ayer Lapid, who is kind of young, handsome, having his merry men there that are all coming. A wonderful background, yeah, by talk the way. about him
0: because he just decided to set up a party, you know, 12 months ago yeah. and, suddenly, and suddenly he got 19 votes out of nowhere.
2: He's a media personality, and of course I won't say anything about media personalities here, <laughs> and decided to, to set a, a party. But what is his real agenda? He, he actually appeals to the Tel Avivian middle-class Fed up of the conflicts. Fed up even hearing about the conflict. Let it just go away in one way or another. Uh, cost of living is is increasing all the time. They want the kind of the Tel Avivian model of good life, high tech, pharmaceutical, good culture, good he, food. That's
0: what he comes from. He's uh, he, he's got that yeah. image. But did he run on any particular ticket?
2: The the main. The two main tickets is one the cost of living, but mainly the which he follows his father by that for footsteps is the ultra orthodox issue. They should share the same burden when it comes to service in the army, which in a way it's a populist because no one actually asks the army if they want them. <laughs> but that's this beside the the, the the issue already. What the army wants, of course, in. In, in a state in which the military is a melting pot, in a sort of in equalite between people, it makes sense that they share some some of this burden, but in a completely different way.
0: From the sort of outside uh, yeah. position where we are here, uh, one always thinks that the that this will have a, an influence on the peace process.
2: Yair Lapid's voters definitely would like to see the the peace process restart, and even Netanyahu said few words towards this direction in order to appease Yair Lapid. The only problem is that his favorite party within the coalition is Naftali Bennett's one, who wants to annex parts of the West Bank, which is not a good start for any peace negotiations. So if he actually means the peace process, he probably needs to put pressure on Netanyahu to go with parties like the Labour Party uh, or the movement, Tzipi Livni. But this is not the direction. I think we'll see in the next few weeks... A lot of, uh, a lot of this kind of horse trading between portfolios,
0: personalities, and. An agenda, mm-hmm. horse trading now. Naomi Alderman, that sounds like something uh, straight out of the liar's gossip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes, of course. In a certain way, things haven't changed that much over many, many centuries in that particular part of the world. I had a question about um, the Haredi uh, sons going into the army. Um, my understanding is, and but you'll have to tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, my understanding is, it's actually. It's sort of important for the peace process very long term because, of course, the Haredi community tend to be the very right wing, hardline community, the community that's most likely to support settlers and and annexation and whatever. And at the moment, they're not risking their sons. And so the, 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 the votes from that area of the community have become more and more hardline because their sons aren't the ones who are having to go in. And even if not being killed then you know having the terrible effects yeah. of prolonged uh, being a, a prolonged state of being in an army of occupation which is just kind of horrifying for for young men in Israel um, and so that actually even if the army don't want them and even if they'll be completely useless there's oh. still a reason to, ke- to get those those boys into the army to involve that side yeah. of Israeli society in what's really going on
2: but you see this this will the old orthodox talk about confusion in Israeli politics, they are constructively confused. And you see, the Haredim, in principle, are anti Zionist. Mm. So, in some principle, d- a group of them. So, some of them, yeah. So yeah, some so of the them culture, are against, yeah. uh, not only the nuclear, it goes beyond. But gradually, what happened to them, they start competing with the Gushemunim, mm. with the settler settling movement or the settlement movement. They are most likely will be in government and they. More and more you can see the middle rank officers in the army come from the settlement, and they are the people that will have to evacuate mm. the settlers if there is a peace. And I saw it in my own eyes in 2005. I was in Gaza reporting, actually, from Gaza, from the disengagement, and some of them emotionally mm. were really distraught. Uh, you see them crying. So this is a big... <sighs> You know, a big ch- shift within Israeli society, for the ultra-orthodox serving the army is not that important in this sense. How you square the circle of the settlers have to actually remove their own families there, this will be a big challenge mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. The settlers, is how they actually integrate within the Israeli society. One of this is the army, but you can also do it in different ways, including civil service. Mm-hmm. You know, to find them an alternative, sir.
0: All the polls before the election, Yossi, predicted a a massive surge to the right. Uh, Now, obviously, as you say, everything in in Israel is unpredictable and the poll, but they were very strong and everyone was really expecting this and it did not materialise at all.
2: It's obvious that they got it wrong, but it's not obvious. It's very difficult to poll in a country that is fragmented. But the other thing, I think they look at, they ask people what party they support instead of looking at the issues that are most important for them. And you see that consistently... Actually, most Israelis say that the most important issue for them is, is economy. Most of them actually say that they are in support of, of peace process with the Palestinians based on two-state solution. So actually, you have to be surprised that the right is getting so many votes, and not why the left is not having more, more, more support. But there is the confusion here. They say that that's what they want, but they don't trust the other side. And as a result, they are looking for a strong man. And then they are looking for all sorts of personalities, more than agendas, more than platforms.
0: Yeah, they got Chuck Norris this year. That's the strong man that they got.
2: Well, I, I think it's more uh, Inspector
0: Clouseau. Can you tell us what's the landscape look like? What, what will Netanyahu be able to do and accomplish with this coalition?
2: If 50% of a good answer is a good question, so your, your question actually answered it, it's a big It's a big, fragmented political system that wants different things. One wants to move quickly on equality within the Israeli society, need to other deals with social issues. Some wants to go quicker on, on, on... the peace with the Palestinians, some are concerned in the wider developments in the Arab world. I think part of the, some of the people that voted f- for Lapid and actually reduced the, the power of Netanyahu considerably, he, together with Lieberman, with Israel, Baitenu lost around a quarter of their vote because they are concerned about a clash with a second, a second Obama administration. So you get so many answers, but all lead to one direction of fragmentation and inability to have a coherent agenda
0: for the next four years. So what, which what, does, is this never... what does this mean for, for parties left out of that coalition? What does it mean for the Arab parties, for example, where what, do they stand?
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that worries me very much about the first thing that Yair Lapid was said, I'm not going with, with Zouabi, I'm not going with the Arab parties. I won't have a blocking block. I find it's racist. I think she was elected. She was elected by the public. Israeli public, whatever Yair Lapid might think about them, and he sh- uh, so he exclude zuabi for instance. I know he doesn't like her opinions, but he excludes from the political process. I think this is a de- this is dangerous. I think what needs to be done is to be as a normal democracy should have a government that governs and an opposition that oversees the government and. Builds an alternative for the next election. And we not don't everyone. Have this. Is that
0: what you're saying? We don't have this situation.
2: It's not for many, many years. And as a result, there is never a, a viable alternative come election day. <laughs>
0: No South Jewish podcast will be complete without touching on the latest cartoon controversy. Uh, Gerald Scarf's cartoon in last week's Sunday Times. I wanted to ask our, our panel what they thought of this uh, depiction of Netanyahu building a wall uh, uh, on the bodies of Palestinians taking their blood as cement. So we'll have to touch on this name. Have you seen the Scarfe uh, I Scarf, have, cartoon? yes.
1: It's, it's a really horrible image, as so many of Scarf's cartoons are really horrible images. Exactly. That's, that's exactly his style. You know, there's, he did one of... Um, Assad of Syria drinking children's blood. Can you imagine? If he had done that with 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 a Jew, we would all be going, Oh, this is anti Semitic. Well, you know. There is there is a case to be made that one should be sensitive around Um, particular pieces of iconography that have been used to oppress particular peoples. So, for example, there was um, a controversy a couple of years ago when Vogue ran a cover with uh, LeBron James, the, the basketball player, um holding an actress in a sort of um she was in a in a fluttering dress and in a and, and basically it looked like the image from king kong with fey ray and and therefore there's a sort of oh look you know here they're saying that Le- lebron james is king kong so i think i think there's an argument for caricaturists having sensitivity to uh, particular forms of iconography that have been used in that way uh I suppose I would say, yes, it, it would be good if people were aware that um, images around blood and drinking blood have absolutely been used as anti-Semitic images for years and years. Having said that, I don't think it's...
0: But he is aware of it. Should we here in the studio be sort of saying, no, we have to stop this because it is an insidious kind of agglomeration of images that is actually having a negative effect and we're back to where we started back in the 1930s? Alexander, is this the is this the, 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 the we're doomed to repeat this?
3: I don't think necessarily. I think, I mean, I think there was an added sensitivity that occurred on Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, I think that yes, we can we can talk about. I think there is a, um, a sensitivity to to big nose caricatures um, that do bring back the blood libel. But I do think that um, I'd rather focus on the cause. I'd rather focus on on the issue at hand. I'd rather focus on the fact that um, these are Israeli government policies, um, both foreign and domestic, um, that have uh, that have caused somebody to um, to draw something like this. And I think it's a manifestation as opposed to. a cause. Yossi.
2: I would like to see sometimes cartoonists a bit more culturally sensitive and we saw it through the depiction of maybe of the cultures. exactly theory. but yeah there is always it will create this third or a week everyone will get excited about it and there will be the next cartoon will cause some stir about it yes I think there was an element of insensitivity in there but yes cartoons you need it to depict in in one picture and to to shake a little bit people and that's that's what what he did and that's what he does uh, best i think freedom of speech is is important the balance between uh, cultural insensitivity and freedom of speech i will go for freedom of uh, of speech yes it's good that people criticized highlighted the sensitivity of that and we move on.
1: That seems to me to be um, actually the most healthy way for this debate to occur. You know, he has a perfect right to draw the picture and to publish it. We have a perfect right to go, eh. and, and And that debate is part of a healthy democratic debate. You know, I, I know it's the old rabbi going, you are right and you are right. You're both right. But actually, you know, I think it's very healthy to be able to have this conversation.
0: <laughs> this is very much Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London. against the backdrop of the seemingly intractable conflict between Israelis and Palestinians come two documentaries from Israel, both now shortlisted for the best documentary at the Oscars, which take place at the end of the month, February the 24th. Gatekeepers and Five Broken Cameras thus represent some achievement for Israeli cinema. Five Broken Cameras is a deeply personal tale of life in the tiny Palestinian town of Bilin from the perspective of Emad Bernat, a Palestinian farmer. He takes up filming for the first time in 2005 when he was given his first camera to celebrate the birth of his youngest son, Gibril. Through the lens of this camera, he then begins to document the weekly protests at the expanding Jewish settlement across the barrier at the foot of his town. Emad Bernat then teamed up with the Israeli-Jewish co-director Guy Davidi to condense the hours of material into a single narrative voice, taking the footage from five different cameras, which he'd had to use over the period for various reasons. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, in every way, is Gatekeepers, directed by Draw Moret, Where Five Broken Cameras is a raw document, Gatekeepers is an astonishingly candid set of interviews with six former directors of Israel's internal intelligence agency, Shin Beit. But it's not just a set of talking heads. Sophisticatedly interspersed between the interviews are CGI satellite images of Palestinian targets being taken out, cleverly reconstructed footage and stills from some of Israel's most prominent terrorist attacks, and amazing archive footage put together to construct an extraordinary narrative. Earlier on, Sounds Jewish caught up with Moret on the Oscar trail and began by asking him how he managed to persuade these six former directors of Shimbait to talk so openly for the first time.
4: Look, I think it, it is timing. It was timing that, uh, and like everything else in life, timing is the most important thing. I think that the, when I approached them, it was uh, in a time where they felt really, really concerned for the future of the state of Israel especially when they saw at that time the current administration and his lack of willingness to move forward uh, with the Palestinians to try to move forward towards peace or towards, let's say, measures that can say that the administration is really serious in his statement for two-state solutions. And um, the second thing was that um, they understood what I wanted to say And they came aboard. You know, I I approached each one of them separately. The first one was Ami Ayalon, and he kind of opened the door to me. Well, let's say I will call him the gate opener. He was the one that opened the door for me to reach all the other, uh, some of the others. And by that, you know, after you have two, three, it's far easier for you to say, okay, I have two of them. I want you to come, and they came. And believe me, during the interviews, at least 20 times. In each interview, my jaw literally dropped down from the stories that they told me. There's a lot of material which is left out in the editing, editing room. We started in Israel in uh, a month ago in two small cinemas, the Cinematech in Jerusalem and the Tech in Tel Aviv. After one week, we moved into seven cinemas because of the demand. And a week after that, we moved into 15 cinemas, uh, which for the first time, you know, also the big multiplex cinemas have uh, shown a documentary. The response is overwhelming by the journalists, by the critics, by everywhere. Politicians also, uh, well, from the left and center endorsed to right, uh, do not endorse the film. But they have a difficult time to deal with uh, the message that six heads of are carrying inside the movie. So it's overwhelming for me. It's really, really amazing to see how much uh, the film has turned a debate within Israel, and I am happy and thrilled
0: about that. So, I'll turn to Alexander uh, here. Uh, You're a uh, documentary filmmaker. Tell us about these documentaries. What did you make of both of these films? I mean, it's amazing that there are two Israeli films, or one Israeli co-Palestinian production film, nominated uh, amongst the five films at the Oscars this year. I suppose that's a a cultural kind of uh, blossoming in some way, but what does it represent?
3: i think they're, they're they're fascinating i think that um, to have them nominated the same year um and to have them come out at the same time is is a really interesting uh analysis of i mean they're, they're dealing with Not exactly the same issue, but very similar issues, um, but from very different perspectives. You've got uh, The Gatekeepers, which looks at Israel post-1967 through six talking heads and makes it incredibly cinematic. I mean, Dror Moret is a former cinematographer in both documentary and fiction. And you can see that it's very important that he can... Make these these talking heads come alive, and as you mentioned, uh, through through CGI, through computer generated imagery, um, and reconstruction of, of of some of these events, and the way he mixes it, especially in the Clive three hundred, the bus hijacking scene, and then you've got five broken cameras, which um, I think is equally fascinating in this single point of view, this POV um, of a father trying to capture the, the 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 first few years of of his son, and um, and he's captured some amazing imagery and you it really puts the audience in in his position i mean you see the bullets flying you see the bullet coming towards you that and then all of a sudden the camera goes and the sound the sound when that happens it's it, it rings in your ears for for, for days after. So I I found them very affecting.
0: Naomi Alderman, if, if films like this, when they're, when they're put up for Oscars, etc., uh, forget the parochial politics, if you will, the very the kind of nitty-gritty of what they're saying, is that important that they can become art, their artistic artefacts now? They're there for the entire world. Is, is it important that they are about what they're about, i.e. the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, or are they just good conflict movies, i.e. they've got this dramatic kind of pull in them? Are they as, as, as age-old a conflict as the ones you document in The Liar's Gospel, for example?
1: I mean, I don't think that we can uh, try to try to tease apart the artistic merits from the subject matter. You know, I think they take their power from the fact that they are um, movies about situations and issues that we've heard about on, a, on, a, on an international stage. Um, I mean, I'm going to say, which is really quite a sort of controversial opinion around the table, and probably because I'm really not an expert on Israel in any way, um, I found five cameras quite hard to understand. I didn't know what was going on a lot of the time. I thought it was quite incoherent at times, and I had to go and um, look at Wikipedia afterwards to find out what had happened in in and what the situation was there. And uh, it's interesting to watch the films as a pair. I think I think they work very well, actually, as a pair. I sort of wish that each filmmaker had had a chance to kind of talk to the other one, and beca- because... Uh, uh, the gatekeepers is 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 very analytical. Really takes that sort of um, well that drone down view of of the country and really looks and says, okay, what is the big picture here? And and inevitably, um, Five Cameras is uh, very much ground level. This is this man's experience of his life. Uh, I really wished it had had some more context because when when I went to sort of look up the details of what had happened in Berlin, it turns out that the situation there was really complicated and. Not not only were there um, uh, i mean there, there's sort of ongoing protests against the wall that 's been erected mm. through the through their through their lands um, and and from watching the film, I just got the impression that kind of horrible Israelis had come in and just stolen their land and then they protested and then there were violence and then like repetitive repetitive violence and then suddenly they won um, and actually what had happened, which doesn't really, I think, appear anywhere in the film, is that um, the mayor of Bila'in had uh, employed a sort of hotshot Israeli lawyer who went to argue their case before um, the Israeli courts. And then and this, this had, had to be continually sort of argued until the point that actually the Israeli courts took down the wall, ruled, ruled the wall had to be taken down. And even the IDF, the Israeli, the, the Israeli army, were testifying in the Israeli courts, that they would like this, that the settlements they were defending were completely illegal. But I
0: think Alex pointed out that he was very, very strong, that, it's a, that this, this film is a definitely a POV film.
1: There were two scenes that I thought were remarkable in that film. One is when the, the, the IDF come to the filmmaker's house and tell him that he is living in a military zone. And he says, no, but I'm in my own house, I can film, I can film. And you sort of see... I mean, both, but of course, obviously, it's terrifying for him for this, for this to happen. And you as a viewer are terrified. Um, and also, I felt you could see that the soldiers were quite reluctant to be doing what they were doing. There seemed to be reluctance on both sides to be involved in this horrible situation. The other thing that I hadn't known and was really shocked by is um, at one point he has a car crash Uh, which seems to have been just an accident. I don't think there was anything else. He had a car crash. Um, And and he's desperately in need of medical treatment. He goes to hospital. uh, And he just sort of says in passing, well, the Palestinian Authority won't pay for my treatment because it's not related to the resistance. And so I'm saddled with the bills. And you just go, oh, the sort of vested interest on both sides in... in, I mean... (laughs) If that is true, which I don't know, I I I don't necessarily feel like I can believe anything. But but if that is true, that that, that the Palestinian Authority will not pay for treatment unless you're unless you you were injured involved in resistance, um, then it means that being involved in resistance in Palestine is like having a uh, a health insurance policy in the United States. This is, I was. I was staggered by this. So for, you know, from those for those sort of little moments, I think absolutely worth watching. Both movies worth watching. Really,
0: I found Five Broken Cameras extremely powerful to watch. I can't say it was palatable, but it was. It was powerful. And I'm wondering, uh, Yossi Mekelberg, if I bring you in here, uh, these two mirrors that are held up to the Society of Israel that reflect both inward and, of course, now that they're nominated as Best Documentaries at the Oscars, reflect outward. What sort of image is Israel portraying with these two films? They're funded by the Israeli Film Fund, so in some way they want people to say, this is Israel. Do these films say, this is Israel, to you?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with Alexander. It's a must-see, both of them. And uh, especially if there is no Chuck Norris coming out soon. But these two Two documentaries are massive, not only for the Jewish community or Jews around the world or for Israelis, for everyone that cares about conflict. They're about conflict and how they develop and evolve. With gatekeepers, here you have 30 years of Shabak, 30 years of internal security. These guys are not wishy-washy liberals, academics that want peace. Those are tough guys one by one, and they all tell you exactly the same thing. There is no military solution. You can't postpone you can stop a lot of these terrorist attacks what one thing you can do the shabak will not give you a solution the solution need to go through a political process the worrying things when you listen to all of them six of them that some of them turn to politics they say we don't trust the politicians we have
0: zero trust in politicians so for you a political expert were, the, were these films revelatory in their, in their insights
2: is the, I don't think they said a lot of new things that we didn't know. Those of us who deal with it day in, day out, there a lot of these things were out there. But it's great that it's for the public, it's out there. It's, they say it in such an eloquent way. And if anyone wants to listen to them, instead of just kind of dismissing, it, say, here you have the people that were in the forefront for decades and decades, in the forefront of Israeli security, and they tell you, and to see Avram Shalom, that I know uh, now looks like a nice granddad, but this is, this is, this is a tough guy, mm-hmm. tells you, that not only we need to talk to the, to, to the PLO and the Hamas, even the Islamic jihad should be there on the table, I think we should listen to him. <laughs>
0: By way of complete contrast, later this month, the Tricycle Theatre in Kilburn is staging its version of the acclaimed 2005 documentary Paper Dolls about the double life of Filipino care workers looking after elderly, orthodox Jewish men for six days a week in Jerusalem and then on their one free night a week becoming drag performers in the hedonistic world of Tel Aviv. Ali, uh, you've been working with the film's maker, uh, Toma Heyman, haven't you? Has he he told you what's going to happen to this uh, now the film's become a
3: stage musical? He he did tell me um, about the making of of uh, Paper Dolls which I mean it took him five, six years to film he was following this troop around some of the stories that came out of that and some of the scenes that weren't actually included in the final film there's one scene between uh, two of the leads um, Chaim and Sally um, when they go to the Western Wall and Sally who's born a man thinks that he should go to the male side but Chaim who has learned to see him as a woman says no you should go to the woman's side um, and that's where you pray and it's I mean it's an incredible trail of a 90 of year old and a 40 year old it's a love story between mm. these two that
1: relationship um, in that film was absolutely beautiful of all the relationships in the film and, and really you know again it's discovering something that one had never heard of in, in this society and that, that But that particular relationship and the way that um, Sally ends up speaking for Chaim, because Chaim has lost his voice. And so Sally is speaking on the phone, his words to his daughter. Um, and... Oh, I suppose I shouldn't say what happens at the end, but let, let's say that it, it's, it's, yeah, it remains very, very moving. I mean, these three movies actually all together, the number of different uh, sort of nationalities and, and, and international pressures that united in Israel, absolutely astonishing.
0: Uh, Yossi, is, is this it was Paper Dolls a, a TV series and, and the film? Did that lift a lift a lid on a certain area of uh, Israeli society that had never been documented before, and now people know about it?
2: You see, someone grew up around Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, the state of Tel Aviv, if you like, <laughs> was always kind of a more liberal and open than other parts. Without. You know, saying anything about other parts of Israel but again it's, it shows you part of the diversity of Israel and there is on the one hand you, you, uh, you have nationalism and extreme religious and all this big ideological debate on the other hand you have some beautiful, mm. <laughs> beautiful s- social development in the society and of course uh, when I grew up all of this didn't exist and gradually it, it's, it's changed and the way Tel Aviv changed into you know, a very multicultural, international place.
1: Living outside Israel, it's very easy to get the impression of the country that it's all about the peace process and Palestinians all the time. That's all mm. anybody ever thinks about. And yes. actually, it's really lovely to be introduced to Israel as a, as, as a society, like any other mm, society, right. which has its, its big political issue, but also these tiny issues of who is going to clean up the old man's beard when he's unable to clean himself up, you know, who is going to put him to bed. I can't
0: wait to see how how, uh, it is made into a theatrical piece at the Tricycle Theatre from the 28th of February to the 13th of April. It will be down there in Kilburn. Uh, So do go and check out Paper Dolls as it comes onto the stage. Thanks very much to all of my guests. Draw Murray, Yossi Meckelberg, Naomi Alderman, Alexander Bodin Safir and, of course, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Our next show will be our annual visit to Jewish Book Week, so don't miss it. We'll be catching up with Naomi there. But for me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters on Sounds Jewish, it's goodbye.